Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago Day. Ah, I just got back from Eastside. Face, say hello. We're glad that you're with us today. One of our uh, practices at Imago is practicing vocation. It's realizing that God has gifted and called us to different places in the city uh, to work for the common good of our city for human flourishing. And so we're excited to see Innovation Lab and, and how God might use some of your unique gifts and skill sets and really just thankful. Like, let, we don't need more nonprofits, we need for profit. Like, we need to make money. Come on, people. <laughs> Let's do this. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We are in a new series, second week, of the cruciformed life. Um, cruciform, that's kind of a weird word, but what it means is to be arranged in the shape of a cross. When we think about following Jesus together, and when we think about our spiritual life, it is a life that is cruciformed, it's cross-shaped. That is, God continues to, to form us into His image. It's an image where we are dying to ourselves to live for God and to live for the sake of the world. And so in that sense, it's cruciform. And we're looking primarily at Philippians chapter 3. We're going to take several weeks through this. Um, and what we're looking at is a passage where Paul strikes upon this theme of the cruciform life. He doesn't use that language specifically, but everything that he's talking about is pointing to it. And he's writing to a church in Philippi that is struggling to really believe that Jesus and His work on the cross and who He is is all you need for salvation. Some people are saying, you know what, I, I believe in Jesus, I know Jesus, I trust Jesus, but you still need to have certain behaviors down. You still need to have certain sets of rules and regulations that you follow. And what had happened to this population, to this community, is they, they grew sort of an arrogance within them. That it wasn't just enough to know Jesus, but you also had to have the right ideas, the right behaviors, come from the right families, do the right things, go to the right schools, learn from the right teachers. And for us today, it wouldn't be one-for-one one comparison. But if most of us were honest, when we really think about having our life held together, we think, yes, we need Jesus if you're a follower of Christ, and we need His grace. But we also have to have the right ideas and the right ideologies. We have to be a part of the right groups. And, and what happens is that we use those things to distinguish us from one another. And in Paul's mind and imagination, that was a total loss for the kingdom of God when the people of God started thinking like that. 
In fact, he would say that when churches divide over the lines of culture, that the principalities and powers of the world have won. And it's tragic today that we see much of that happening within the church, that we divide over these lines that are typically cultural lines, not Christ lines. And so he's writing to them, and he's writing them to basically say, look, I once lived like that. I once had a resume that was actually way better than yours. Uh, He says it not so lightly, right? Paul doesn't have a problem coming kind of right in their face. And he lists these seven things that he's like, I did these better than anybody. And yet, he says, and this is what we're going to focus on is verse 8 today. He says, what is more, I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things and I consider them garbage. The word for garbage literally means, like, have you ever had a dog that went through the trash in your house? Am I the only one that's had that dog? Like, we've all had that dog. And, and then, like, whatever's left when he's done or she's done going through it and you have to clean it up, that, what's laying there, he, that's the word he's using. He goes, all my gains, when I look back at them, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my gains look like that to me. It's a pretty strong statement. If we were honest with ourselves this morning, most of us would say, if I had this, if I gained this thing, this person, this accolade, then my life would be right. Then I could be content. What would you need to gain in order for you to say, my life is content and desirable and what I want it to be? Some of us, it would be monetary. Some of us, like, would you ever work again if you didn't have to? Like, we have this fascination with those things. And what Paul is saying is that life is actually not about what we gain, not about being in the right groups or having the right ideology, but it's about knowing Christ. And it's through knowing Christ that we gain life. John chapter 17, Jesus says something very similar and makes a similar point in verse 3. Can we put it up? Now this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Some of us think about eternal life as an amount of time. That when Jesus says, I give you eternal life, that means I get to go to heaven. But here, He's framing it as knowledge of Jesus and the Father. He says there is something about knowing me relationally. The word, I think, is epigonosco. It's a word that means full knowledge. To have the full knowledge of Jesus is eternal life. Which means this knowing is a different kind of knowing than typical Western thought when we think of the word know or to know. It means it's, it's not speculative, like we're trying to figure out, but it's practical. It's about coming here to worship. It's about it's practicing prayer, practicing hospitality. It's 
following in the ways of Jesus. That's knowing. It's not theoretical. It's not necessarily just creating theologies or philosophies. But it's experimental. It's getting the relationship that you have with Jesus onto the pavement of your real life. It's not intellectual, where we just simply think about it, but it's spiritual. It's a knowing of Jesus that moves our heart, changes our affections, and then fires our will in a different direction. It's a knowledge that isn't static, like definitions on pieces of paper, but it's a knowledge that's active. It's saving knowledge. That when we know this Jesus, it saves us. It changes us. And Paul said that, that it was the surpassing worth of anything else in the world. The knowing Jesus surpassed everything. And it led him to consider everything else as loss. What would it look like today if hundreds of followers of Jesus could state that with Paul? If people in a consumer culture that is very affluent comparatively throughout the world could say authentically from our heart that I consider all things a lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And it makes me ask the question, what did he see in Jesus? What is it that Paul saw? What did he experience? Who did he encounter in Christ that he could make such a profound statement? Well, here's a short list of perhaps the Jesus that Paul saw. Paul saw an eternal high priest who is praying right now in heaven to completely save you. The writer of Hebrews says this. The book of Romans says this. If any of you have 17, 18-year-old kids, this is the prayer that got me through those seasons. It was knowing that Jesus right now is praying, interceding to completely save you. That can make a parent sleep at night. Paul saw a good shepherd that would leave the 99 and go chase the one who was lost. A good shepherd who cared for you and led him by still waters. When he saw Jesus, he saw the true King of Israel, the hope of all of the Old Testament. He saw Jesus as the King of the world, the King of kings, the King of the universe that held and sustained all things by His own powerful Word. That's who Paul saw. He saw an all-sufficient Savior. One who could take away your sin, but not just take away your sin, one who could save you from your flesh save you from the world, save you from the devil, and yet still meet you in your brokenness with healing in His wings. That's Paul's Jesus. He saw Jesus as an all-powerful Redeemer who looked at all the debt that we had to pay for our rebellion and He screamed out to telestai, 
paid in full on the cross. It is finished. He saw a Redeemer who paid your debt in full. Paul saw in Jesus a self-sacrificing ransom who purchased us back from death and purchased us back from hell with His own blood. Somebody needs to say amen to that. Paul saw an adopted older brother who was preparing a place for him in his father's house. He saw the Son of God who was sharing His very relationship with the Father with us, who put His own cry for the Father in our mouth, who made His Abba our Abba. That's who Paul saw. He saw the Jesus, the One who would pour out His Holy Spirit on you. The vine who bears His own spiritual fruit through you who shined His light into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the Jesus Paul saw. He saw your eternal relationship with the God of the universe. He saw love embodied and poured out on you, the Beloved. Paul saw the One who justifies fully, who sanctifies completely, and who glorifies forever. I wish I could describe Him to you better. And if you got all that I just listed, you would barely be scratching the surface. But you get a glimpse into who Christ is. Paul saw that Jesus and said, the worth of knowing Him surpasses everything that I once thought was gained. That knowing Him is of supreme worth. It's a worth that transcends everything. And it was in the experience of knowing Him that Paul realized Jesus had become His life. I think some of us hear words like Jesus gave us life. And we, we can picture it transactionally. Like, I prayed to receive Christ, I've trusted Christ, and He must have given me some mystical blob of life that somehow is in my life now. The reality is, it's in knowing Jesus, and when we know Him, and when we're growing in that knowledge and the fullness of He is, that He becomes our life. We find our joy, we find our hope, we find our life in Him. We don't get His life apart from knowing Him. That's why that transactional, very Western view of the Gospel can only take you so far. Paul is seeing something here that he's inviting us to see with him. And I wonder, do we know Him this way? How do I know Him? Right? How, how does that work? Well, Scripture has an, a number of ways of explaining it or illustrating it. To know Him is to trust Him with your mind. That in the midst of those moments where you have to activate your faith, where you could be full of worry, full of concern, that it's in that moment that you recall that He is always with me. 
that He will never leave me and never forsake me and you trust Him with your mind, that's how you know Him. You know Him by loving Him with your whole heart. By saying, God, I know right now there's parts of my heart that I haven't yielded to You. You don't have access to. But that this relationship with Jesus is is where you're giving more and more permission for Him to enter into those deeper places of your life. That's how you know Him. To know Him means to serve Him with your entire life. And I think when some of you hear that, you hear that God is going to take me and be a taskmaster over me and make me do things that I don't want to do. But that's a twisted view of what it means to serve Him. I've told this story a few different times, but when my kids were younger and we used to have to rake all the leaves in the backyard, I remember going to purchase a new rake because our rake had broken. And, and they had these little tiny kid rakes there next to the big rakes. And of course, Josh and Kaylee were like, oh, I want, we want this rake, you know. That, that changes later on. Yard tools aren't on the list later. But, but they wanted them. And so I'm out there and I'm raking the leaves and they're raking with me. And, and I wouldn't say that they were highly productive. Right? It wasn't like I was just like, oh, I can kick back now and my six-year-olds can rake. Um, but I didn't care that they weren't being productive. Right? That wasn't like my thing. My thing was they wanted to be with me. They wanted to participate with me in what I was doing. And they were having joy in it. I mean, they definitely fell into more leaves than they raked and kicked them around. But there was something about it where if you would have asked them, what did you do today? They would say, we helped Dad rake the yard. That's what it's like to serve God with your whole life. (laughs) It is. It's taking your little life, that little rake of your life, and going, I want to participate with you in your purposes. That's how you know Him. That's how you know Him. To know Him means that you rest on Him and rest in Him. Resting on Him means that when you start to get accused that you aren't a good enough Christian or a smart enough follower of Jesus or you're, something's lacking and you should do more, that you check that and you remember that this isn't about me doing the work, it's about what He did. And that I'm resting on His work, resting on what He accomplished, resting on who He is. But I'm also resting in Him. That when I am going through seasons of pain, that I can trust Him to be with me in those places. Some of you have gone through refuge, and I think every single one of us needs to go through refuge. It's where we learn that we can rest in Him even in our hardest places of life. And when you do that, you know Him in that way. To know Him means that you're going to pray to Him and relate to Him. It's not just religious prayer, but it's praying and relating in a relational way that says, Jesus, I know that You are Mine and I know that You are with me. And as you walk that out in life, you're knowing Him. 
means that as you come here today that you adore His beauty and you worship His glory. That you come to this table and you contemplate His sacrifice. And you think about what this bread and wine points to as He hung there on the cross and died for me. As you contemplate it, you know Him. And you... You raise up as you kneel at this table as sinner and you rise up because He calls you saint and you proclaim His resurrection. Because He is raised, you will be raised also. And as you start to proclaim that, you know Him. And when you do all of those things, you are just at the beginning of knowing Him. And I wonder, do we know Him? This is why Paul, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he prays such massive prayers. He doesn't say, church of Ephesus, let me give you the three steps to knowing Jesus. He prays that there would be a supernatural work of the Spirit of God and they would see Christ. He prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we could know the hope we have in knowing Him. The eyes of our heart. I don't even know what that is. And he's praying that they're opened and enlightened so we can know this great hope. He prays that we would have supernatural strength to grasp how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Christ. Supernatural. Like that God would empower us to grab hold of something that seems so big that we could never grab hold of it. But Paul says you can, and I'm praying that you could grasp that. He prays that we would know His love that surpasses knowledge. I mean, that's not even logical, right? But that there is a knowing that is deeper than knowledge so that we would be filled to to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is a pretty big prayer. Have you ever seen somebody just bloated, full of the fullness of God? Me neither. But it's, it's why Paul could say, I consider all things lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because he saw something where he could actually take those gains and count them as loss because what he was getting in knowing Jesus was so much more. Do we know Him like that? Do we want to know Him like that? Years ago when I was in college, we, have, we would have speakers come in every week, like multiple speakers. And I don't remember any of them um, to tell you where, where my head was at. But I do remember one, and his name was Luis Palau. And Luis spoke, and it was pretty life-changing for me. He was fired up to save the world and do evangelism, and I was fired up. And, and if you would have asked me if I knew him, I would have said, yes, I know of him. And I have experienced him. He, he ministered to me. His message had an impact on my life. 
As we came here to plant the church just a few years in, Luis reached out and we became really good friends. And over the last, I don't know, 17 years or so, we've prayed together, we've gone to cities and ministered together, but we've, more than any of that, we've gotten to know each other. To Jeannie and I have sat with him and Pat and prayed for him when he was first diagnosed with cancer. By the way, he's doing great. He's 84. His cancer is not growing. He's still traveling all over the world. And, and he tells me sometimes he gets tired. And I'm like, so do I. <laughs> like, I'm just like 35 more years of my life. I can't even picture that. Um, but now if you were to say, do you know him? I would, I would say... I don't know him as a minister. I don't know him as a guy who preached to me. I know him as a friend and a brother. And it's not so much how his work has affected me, but it's knowing him for who he is now. What Paul is getting at here is that yes, Jesus has impacted your life by what he's done, and he's forgiven you, and you've received mercy. But instead of thinking that that's all that He's done, you need to realize that that's the introduction to knowing Him. And there's so much more to know of Him. Are we too easily satisfied with just barely touching His garment? With barely glimpsing Him? Are we riding on somebody else's glimpse of Him? And what would it look like if hundreds of people in this city were not satisfied with just reading these prayers of Paul to know Jesus, but actually pressing into Christ so that we were experiencing the answer to those prayers. To know Jesus and see Him as our surpassing worth so that we can consider all things lost. What would that mean for you? I want to talk about four ways that we actually do consider everything lost. Because as easy as that is to say, when it gets right down to it, there's real choices, real decisions, things that we have to do in the moment. I was reading these four things from John Piper. I found them very helpful and I wanted to share them with you. But first, counting it all loss means that if we must choose between Christ and anything else, that we will choose Christ. Now, even though God doesn't put us in that crisis every moment of every day, which thankful, like that would be very stressful. Mere this, mere this, mere this. That would be a very busy day. But what it does mean is that we are ready, we've resolved in our heart that if the choice needs to get made, we will choose Christ. I think for many of us, we have come to those moments in our life where God definitely was saying, you cannot know me fully if you continue to hold on to that. And rather than surrendering to God and choosing Christ, we, we just kind of hold on to both and wait. And what makes us miserable about that is that we can't know Christ that way 
And that this thing that we're holding on to that we thought was a gain we could just never lose actually becomes a curse. What would it look like for you today that are standing there in that place to finally lay down that thing and to finally renounce it and choose Christ? Counting all as loss means that we will deal with everything in a way that draws us nearer to Christ so that we gain more of Christ, so that we enjoy more of Christ by the way that we relate to everything. Now, that means that, that we live in a culture where we got it pretty good. And, and there is a version of following Jesus where you're never allowed to be happy where your entire life should be about suffering and being miserable. And that is a hard gospel to, to, to see as good, right? When the Bible very clearly says that God has blessed us with all good things, that every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, it means that when you have those great things, those good things, that you embrace everything that is good with gratitude to Christ and be thankful. And it also means that when you endure the hurtful things, that you do that by being patient and persevering in Christ. The way that we count all as lost means that we will seek to deal with the things of the world in a way that shows that they are not our hope, but that Christ is our hope. This is very challenging in a consumer culture that has entire industries that are built around trying to convince you that this thing should be your hope. This thing will make you the hero of the story. If you buy this, you'll finally be there. And what he's saying is that it means that in dealing with those things, we must be very careful to remember that they are not our treasure. They are not ultimate things. They are good things, fun things, pretty things, but they're not ultimate things. And if we get this right, it means that we will hold everything loosely. That we will be able to share generously. And it also means that we will ascribe value to things in relation to Christ. You know, when I talked earlier about if, there were, if you could gain that one thing that would make your life finally content, what would it be? The truth is, if most of us had that thing, it probably would not draw us closer to Christ. It probably would draw us away from Christ. Because it would become our treasure. It would become our hope. It would become our joy. And then how disappointing it will be when it doesn't follow through. Because it might be a good thing, but it's a horrible Savior. Counting all things lost means that if we lose any or all things that the world offers, that we won't lose our joy, we won't lose our hope, and we won't lose our life. Because all of that is in Christ, who is our joy and our hope, our treasure and our life.
And in smaller losses, what that looks like is that when we lose in smaller ways that we don't grumble and become cynical. I'm preaching myself here, right? And it means that when we have major losses that we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And as Paul walked this life and lived this faith before Jesus, he could say, I have been rich, I've been poor, I've been beaten, I've been safe, but I know that I have been content in all places because I have Christ. At the end of his life, he tells Timothy, I know who I have believed in and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've entrusted to Him, which is my life. What would it look like, brothers and sisters, if today was a day that we actually began to press in as individuals and as a community? Not to focus on how we can lose things, but to focus on how much more of Christ there is to know. And to believe that knowing Him is worth more than anything else that we could gain in this world. I want us to read together Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 through 24, as kind of a confession and as an exhortation for our own hearts today as we come to this table. Let's read this together. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know Me, that I am the Lord. Would you pray with Me? Jesus, I thank You that today we can approach the very Holy of Holies, the presence of God because of the sacrifice that You made on the cross. And I pray, Jesus, that You would pour out a work of Your Holy Spirit as we prepare to contemplate Your sacrifice at this table. Father, I pray that those who are here today who have yet to fully trust You would today renounce, God, the things that have held them back so that they might gain You. Father, we want to know You. To see You in Your Son to know You as our priest, to know You as our healer, to know You as our ransom and our Redeemer, as our Savior, as our friend, our brother, our Lord, our King. And yet, God, sometimes our actions are far from our words. So this morning, God, we just want to give You permission Today we come here, some of us are holding on to things that we don't want to consider loss. We pray that Your Holy Spirit in grace and power would allow us to renounce those that we might know You. 
And would you, by your mercy, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we could see you, Christ, high and lifted up. To see your beauty and to adore your glory and to know you through trust and belief and faith and love and service, that we would know You. And we could say with Paul from the depths of our being that we consider all these other things lost. They're they're garbage to us compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in Your name, Jesus, that we pray and we give You this space and we welcome You by Your Spirit to move in our hearts now. We love You. And we want to know You. In Your name we pray. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with Himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.